Welcome to the Homegrown Podcast, the place where we share the truth about food and farming from our kitchen to yours. I'm your host, Liz Hazelmeyer, and we hope to inspire, educate, and equip you in your pursuit of true nourishment. The 1893 land run in Oklahoma was the largest land run in history. Settlers gathered, waiting to secure roughly 160 acres of new land for their families, and that's where today's story starts. Today, we're sitting down with Chris Gosney, an eighth-generation farmer in Oklahoma with a rich family history in agriculture. Chris, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and to meet you. We are so excited. So I have to share a little bit of how you got here first. Um, we, I am, you know, Instagram friends with a woman named Lizzie. Absolutely. And I know she'll be listening to this episode. So shout out to Lizzie. Thank you for connecting us. But she walked through our children's nutrition curriculum. And then through that sort of season of her life, thought maybe I should get connected closer to my food. And I think it was maybe her sister-in-law or someone in her family who had been purchasing beef from you guys. That's correct. And... I don't know the exact like evolving of the um, events, but she ended up visiting you, driving about three hours to your farm, spent the whole day with you. And she messaged me immediately when she got home and she said, listen, I just met Chris of John's farm and she is amazing. And we toured her facility and they have such a crazy story. And she's giving me all these tidbits that we'll cover today. And I immediately said, we got to get her on the podcast. And so that's when you and I got connected. Um, we were sort of back and forth on, should we go there? Should you come here? So I'm super excited that we're in person in Cincinnati. You flew here. You made the travel all the way. And I'm excited to share your your family's story. So if you want to start us off, um, your family's history dates back to basically the inception of the state of Oklahoma. Which for me and Joey living in Ohio, that's hard for us to comprehend. Because Ohio's, you know, a much older state. But your family, both you and your husband, John, their family starts on that land run in 1893. And so obviously fast forward several generations and you guys are on that same land today working the land. Tell us what it was like uh, or some, some of the stories that you remember growing up on the property that you are on today. Well, I think John and I have over the years become more softened to what it is that our family went through Mm. we're much more aware now than we were originally Um, maybe age brings that about as well but uh, we think back to 1893 when our great-grandparents were making the land run and um, for some reason john's great-grandfather settled in some really kind of rugged territory, rugged terrain called the Gloss Mountains, where there was little water and not much growing. My great-grandfather settled about uh, 15 miles away in some sandy loom area when every time the wind blew, which I think it did a lot then, (laughs) the dirt did move around. And whether or not they ever met one another, we would love to know. Mm, we'll cool. probably never know that. And at first we thought, well, with the terrain difference and things, they probably never met. But you know, they might have because my great-grandmother kind of set the farmer's market for our family. She would have some extra eggs or some extra berries and would take them into Fairview, nearest little community town, and set up as a little farmer's market. Wow. 
So what if John's grandparents actually bought from her? We'll never know. And then we realized, too, that both of our great-grandfathers worked on the railroad. Wow. And were stationed kind of in Fairview area there. So maybe they did meet. Mm. That's something we will always wonder about. And I hope they did. Mm-hmm. John and I actually met uh, when his rural school outside of Fairview closed and consolidated with Fairview schools when he was going to be a senior. Wow. So he moved to Fairview and uh, graduated from there, and that's when I met him. I was a year behind him. So that was a, a very fortunate situation for the both of us, I think. Mm. Um As far as remembering how it was on the farm, we had a uh, relatively nice farm home. We had all of the utilities. John was not so fortunate. (laughs) He did not. Um, He remembers well when those things became available and what fun those were at that point in time. Basics like running water, internal right. heat, yeah, all the things. Yeah, Right, all the things that we're so accustomed to. Um, actually, when, I, uh, when John and I married and we spent time at his parents' home was my first opportunity to bathe in a galvanized tub where you poured water in from a... Um, you know, water pot that you had just heated up on the stove. <laughs> so that was different. Uh, it was a good experience. Wow. I needed that. Yeah. But uh, those are some of the things we laugh about now. I recall um, the time in farming when my father was working off of the farm to support us. And um, all at once, these salespeople started talking about adding additives or chemicals or commercial fertilizers to the soil and what would happen as a result of that is it would increase the yield and I can remember him talking about those things and hoping that that would be the outcome and then starting to order a few of those items and applying them to our fields and sometimes I'm asked you know do you regret him making those decisions because up until then those additives were not available so basically we were all organic farmers Mm -hmm. we were just using the soil that was there and tilling it as best we knew and growing our own food Mm -hmm. and if we had extra we sold it to people in town who needed it so he looked into that and it seemed like it could be a profitable situation maybe it would even mean that he wouldn't need to have a second employment Mm -hmm. so he started using those things and we have to remember too that those were so new that there had not been research into the longevity of the item as well as what would happen as a result of the use to the soil. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, what kind of job, what kind of off-farm job did your dad take? He was actually helping someone else that put up round tops, which is a Quonset, I think maybe is the term okay. for your area. So he would work during the day or 
three or four days a week helping put up storage building um, on another farm. Okay. And then work the soil on his off time. Okay, so it wasn't like he was traveling into a city and working at a... No, it was very rural type employment. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, we still have the round top on our Centennial Farm Mm -hmm. that he helped put up. Wow, that's cool. Yes, it's a neat building. Architecture's neat. It's so... History and architecture are neat. So when you say, like, originally... So it's 160 acres, right, that you're on, roughly. That's correct. For your family. And 160 acres, that, that seems more than a homestead to me. That seems like a working farm. But I guess maybe I have a misconception of that because maybe that was how much land people just had all the time. In my head, I'm like, you're either a farmer, you produce food for the outside community, or you're a homesteader and you produce food for your internal family, and then you sell the excess, like you said. Which category would you closely fall into? Well, I think at first... They were very much a homesteader, yeah. Like you, you're defining, because they they had three years after the land run to make improvements on that property before they went to the land office and then actually filed a claim and were given ownership oh, to wow. that property. Wow. And what's so interesting is when they went to the land office, they needed to take witnesses with them. Hmm. And every witness, as well as the person who had staked the land, had a form to fill out. It was legal length, and there were questions on there like, what improvements have you made? So I am so fortunate to have my great-grandfather's a copy of his form, Mm. as well as a copy of the forms from the three witnesses. So during the three years that he worked the land. He built a sod house. He put up another little outbuilding. He planted 1,000 trees. Well, think about it. There were no trees. (laughs) (laughs) So you needed something to break the wind, if nothing else, and provide some shade and some windbreak. So uh, they planted 1,000 trees. A lot of those were for windbreaks. But there were some fruit trees planted as well, and some shade trees planted. Um, and you make you went to the land office and recorded these improvements that you had made. We're gonna have to break. I lost my train of thought. Well, my my question is like the original intent of the land, 160 acres, feels like a large plot of land. How did he want to grow food? to sell to the community or this was your family's like setting up camp being a homesteader i believe the original intent was to set up camp here we're going to stay here we're going to try to provide food for ourselves if they had chickens they had a milk cow or two they raised a beef they had fruit trees my grandmother planted a garden this is the modern day like 20 to 35 year old 25 to 35 year old dream I think right now like my generation is like bring me back to my 160 acres where I can have a a dairy cow a couple fruit trees some chickens I don't have to go grocery shopping and we can just live and be you know it's so funny hearing you say that to me I'm like I've lived in the suburbs my whole life I'm just 
painting these pictures in my head as you're talking and just thinking like, what a fascinating reality to live in. I know it seems probably odd to you because you're like, listen, this is how I grew up. But to me, I'm like, it just seems like a dream. Well, it's like a return. Yeah. You can just see it progressing. And some people might call it backwards, but I think we look back to move forward. I agree. Mm, I love that. Okay, so you're there. Your dad is now managing the land, which I think is very interesting that they wanted people to improve the land and then they had to kind of vouch for the improvements they're making and then they got land ownership, which makes sense. You can't just like open up all these millions of acres to, you know, people. This isn't even really a settled state yet. It's not even Oklahoma yet. And yeah, I imagine the logistical (laughs) nightmare that that would be. So now he's also having to help his neighbors, basically bring in additional sources of income and he gets this, and, and you'll have to help me with the time frame here, but he is starting to understand that, hey, maybe there's some chemical inputs we can use on our property to increase the amount of food we can have. So maybe we can have some extras and sell them. Well, I think we would probably have to go back a little further than that because by the time my dad started farming, it was more like, okay, we're going to plant wheat here and that is going to go to the co-op and we're going to sell that wheat at a market price. Mm, mm-hmm. So as a family where I grew up, we were already into the more conventional farming mode where we looked at outside marketplaces to take our produce. Mm, mm-hmm. We did very little. In fact, I do not recall my parents having a garden. Mm-hmm. Wow. I know we had some of the fruit trees were still left from generations before, and we would gather some of those. But we were pretty much into the conventional farming mode. When it sh- when, by the time you came along? John's parents, not so much, because of their um, distance from town. Um, they would come into town like once a week, where we could just two and a half miles away, we could go into town and get a loaf of bread or Mm. five pounds of potatoes, but they couldn't so much. However, they did not have running water. So that limited what they could grow on their farm as well. But they had, they milked, they had chickens, they raised beef to process. Mm -hmm. So they had some staples too, and they could come to town and get canned goods and fresh foods, and they could match it all together, and they made it work, Mm. where we had the luxury of going into town, Mm. or we thought at the time it was a luxury. I was just going to say that. Because maybe we didn't understand at that point what we were doing to our healthy soil. Mm -hmm. So at what age, you said you remember your father learning about this stuff how about what age were you when you're that you have these memories like are you in high school are you in middle school I would say in high school okay and then that's about the time you met John yes and you and John together how to walk us through you told us you met at school which is really fun walk us through um how you got to the land that you're on today I'm not even sure which side of the family's land you're on so what does that look like today well uh John is very fortunate as I in that he has inherited his family's centennial farm. Okay. And so uh, we operate both of those. And then we have some other properties that we have gained over the years. And 
we have uh, some rented property as well. So um, we are the only certified organic farmers in our community and one of the very few organic farmers in the state of Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. There are uh, more organic vegetable farmers than there are grain and cattle ranches mm -hmm. that are certified organic in Oklahoma. So you both have your family's property? We do have. And it's about 15 miles apart? Yes, as the crow flies. Is that so, fi like, is, okay, so that's fascinating. You you have an opportunity to see the house you grew up in, and John has an opportunity to be in the house he grew up in. Well, you know, actually his grandparents lived in that home, <clears throat> and his parents rented a place, oh, I'm not sure, six miles away, and they lived in that rent property for 50 years. Wow. Yes. Um, so John did not actually live on his family centennial farm his grandparents did and so he spent time there and sure. and uh, then when his dad inherited that um, he continued to help him farm there but we did not ever live on that property mm. as I did on mine mm -hmm. I see still rich history though that's what I think is so cool it's it's not just like well your family was in the land right both of your families 15 miles apart your great-great-grandparents, right? Or great-grandparents? Yes. Uh, probably knew each other in some capacity, which they you may have. never know. And then you kind of lived parallel lives, but like, as you said, his his place was a little further out, a little more rustic, didn't have running water, didn't have heat, didn't have hot water. I always say, like, I could live without the lights on, but running water is would be the hardest thing to give up because cooking, dishes, bathing, it would just be so hard. So, which people laugh at because, like, my, my grandfather grew up without running water in some capacity. So, then you guys have these. I'm curious, did his family's farm also make that same conventional transition like your, yours did? It did, yes. So, they both go. It's, it's like the streams are coming together, right? Yes. And the river is meeting. Um, so, that's what I think is interesting. You guys both witnessed your parents make these decisions. To go from what I would call maybe traditional farming. It's it's like the organic before organic was a thing, right? Organic before the USDA regulated it. Just right. basic. We live off the land. You probably used your chicken poop as your fertilizer. And you didn't have irrigation necessarily. And you just grew on the land. That's right. And then you have enough people saying, hey, this is hard. Um we're having to get off-farm jobs or maybe we want to produce more food because there's more people moving in whatever that stimulus was and then you have this invention of these different chemical inputs fertilizers maybe herbicides pesticides things like that exactly. and so those enter the marketplace and now you have a whole community primed and ready to accept them because they're like hey you're meeting the needs that i have i have a need where i want to grow more food and not have to split my time off farm and on farm so if i can do that by utilizing your products then i'm going to try that and i'm going to guess that back then because it had never dawned on you i think we talked about this before we hit record it would never have dawned on you to say like, is this food healthy or not? Because you're, you're just growing it from your backyard. It's really hard to, to question something that you've raised from day one that you've probably butchered and processed or that you've plucked off a tree and say, is this healthy for me? Which is funny because nowadays anyone putting any food in their mouth probably asks that question to some degree. Is this healthy? Because we don't know. We don't know where it comes from. So you've got a generation of people 
used to living off the land, growing. Now we have a little bit of input or, or we have a little bit of like yield frustration. Someone's telling us we can solve those problems. And of course they say yes. And that's the thing I always talk about is like, we don't ever want to, um, like anyone who is growing food either for their family or for other people is doing a wonderful thing. Conventional farming has its place and it has its reasons for people who are doing conventional farming. But but we have seen over time that there are pieces of it that degrade to things that we can't bring back or that it takes a long time to bring back. So I, I would, as you said, like we, you would never look at that decision that your dad was having to make and say, oh, I can't believe he made that decision. It made sense to you. Absolutely. You understood. No one was telling them, hey, in like 10, 15 years, we might find out that this is actually stripping the soil of its minerals or it's killing its its microbiome. They didn't even know that the soil was a living thing. And it was just the perfect storm of not knowing fully the impacts of the changes we were making. I don't know if we made them too soon or what, but I'm curious as you witnessed that, Walk us through your early conventional farming days with John because you guys kind of carried in your family's tradition. I mean, if I grew up one way, I'd carry the way my, my parents did too. So before your switch to organic, talk us through what that looked like. We, we were so conventional. <laughs> it's amazing, really, because when we uh, came back from college and we started farming, we went into farming with my dad. So you went to college? Yes, we did. What'd you study? Well, I got a, um, a teaching degree, and John studied business. But you knew you were going to come back to the farm? Oh, absolutely, because John couldn't think of anything else. Why didn't you just stay on the farm? I think because we needed that time away from the farm. Mm. And we placed high value in education. Yeah, interesting. And so we, uh, well, John went um, we went to the Southwestern State University, which is only 60 miles from Fairview. So John went there when he graduated, and when I graduated the next year, I went there as well. Then we were married at the semester, and we spent uh, another two and a half years there. And then John graduated, so we went back to Fairview so he could start farming just as soon as he possibly could. <laughs> and I commuted my last year Wow. Uh, to complete my education for teaching that's but boy I almost hate to admit this now but uh, when we started farming with my dad they went into a a custom farming operation where they would contract with you know a landowner that maybe needed his land disc and he didn't have time to do it or his disc broke down and we could help out but we also did a commercial fertilizer application hmm. oh my well we wouldn't probably <laughs> do that again but uh, you know we didn't know any better at the time and it was getting back on the land and getting in those tractors which he just had to do and so that's how we started with a um, kind of commercial somewhat farming operation and were you doing wheat and cattle back then as well um, my dad was doing wheat, and so was John's dad, and, and my dad ran some stalkers, very limited. John's dad ran a cow-calf herd. So between those two and then John getting an off-the-farm job, of course, um, to 
help us pay the bills, that's how we got involved into farming. Mm. And so that was in about uh, the early 70s. And we continued with that mindset and those practices until 1996. Wow. So we've, we've seen it all. You know, we've done all of those things. Um, and we really had no intention of getting away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we were used to. And let's face it, when, when you're comfortable with where you are, you don't really look to make a lot of changes. Mm-hmm. And we thought we were comfortable. And in some ways we were. But in 95, uh, we lost our son in a harvest accident. Mm. So it's like, who wants to farm anymore? That's our future farmer. So jeepers. And John was already getting somewhat bored with farming. It took several years before he told me that. (laughs) But uh, it was like, this is so repetitive we do this, we apply that, we do this, we apply that. And then we plant the crop and then we buy stalkers and we, we, we were pretty good at that. We could buy them high and sell them low. But uh, that's just what we did, repeat the cycle, repeat the cycle, repeat the cycle. Well, we lost our son, like I said, in 95 and it's like, well, you know, we don't have any future in this, we're bored in this. and. Now what? Um, and in the spring of 96, one of our neighbors called us. We farmed fence row to fence row with him. And he said, um, I would like to visit with you about renting my farm land. I have another business going, agricultural-based business. I can't do both of them. We farm fence row to fence row. How about you farm for me? And, you know, there's just one requirement, and that is that it be farmed organic because my dad has never done anything else, and he is gone now, but I've kept up that tradition, and so that's that's the only requirement. Mm. Like, well, that's great, but we don't know how to spell that word because we've never had to. <laughs> so it's like, I don't think we can do that. And he said to John, well, you think about it, I'll contact you again in a few weeks. And sure enough, he did. He called back in a couple of weeks, and the answer was the same. You know, it's like, I just, I don't know the first thing about that. I don't understand it. I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't know what not to do. I just, no, we can't do it. Okay, well, great. You think about it. I'll call you back. (laughs) And so we actually put a pencil to it. And like, okay, if we do this, could we actually survive a little longer because at that point in time the economics of agriculture were horrible in the 70s and many um, of our neighbors were giving it up or taking full-time outside jobs and making farming a hobby Um, what should we do Mm -hmm. Um, should we go should we try it and here he is saying i'll help you you know whatever you need you just call me I'll help you and and you know we you can handle this you can manage this and so the economic factor was our motivation Mm. to say yes if we had known then what we know now that wouldn't have been a factor we would have gladly said yes in the first place but Mm. we didn't know 
was totally new. The best part about, or at least one of the best parts about that decision was that when John accepts something, he does it wholeheartedly. And he was going to be an organic farmer of 400 acres and in the meantime farm a couple thousand acres conventionally. And he wasn't about to let that organic operation fail. Wow. So it gave him something to think about, to read about, to study, and to focus on instead of what our tragedy that we had focused Mm, on. Yeah. And it took us about three years to realize, oh, wait a minute. This had nothing to do with us. God closed a door, and he opened another one. Mm -hmm. And then he had to push us through it, of all things. (laughs) But uh, once we realized that, it was like, oh, wow. You know? So from starting off with just a minor organic operation and leaning a lot on our friend and neighbor for advice and a a myriad of self-study that John did, it was like, wait a minute, I am being redefined. I'm no longer that guy anymore. Mm. I am the organic farmer. Wow. This just defines me. I love it, and I'm going to pursue it. Mm-hmm. So we started transitioning everything we did into the organic program. So we end up down the road three, four years later, and we have transitioned all of our cultivated land into the organic program. And we are still purchasing uh, stalker steers to bring in in the fall, feed through the winter, sell in the spring. And we decided, well, wait a minute. If we've done that much, uh, we don't know how to raise organic beef, but at least we could stop the inputs. We could stop the antibiotics, we could stop the other medications, we could stop the growth implants, and we could define for ourselves what natural means and start raising natural stalkers. Well, we did that for a few years, and then it's like, well, every time we take those stalkers to the sale barn, they bring a little bit extra. Why is that? We start asking questions, and we realize that the buyers are purchasing these cattle because they've never had growth implants. They're taking them to a feed yard and they are growth implanting them, but because they've not had them previously, they respond quicker, which means now the buyer or the feed yard sees faster growth, more income. Well, why are we passing that on? Maybe we should consider what we're doing and look at this from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. We didn't own a cow, but we started transitioning to a cow-calf herd, which would be required to be certified organic. And we don't do that just by 100 head at a time because those are expensive dudes. Mm -hmm. So we add a few and we keep raising stalkers and we add a few more and we keep raising stalkers until we convert to a total cow calf herd and just for my understanding as liz who lives in the suburbs a stalker is a cow you take on for a period of time and then gets and then ends its time at a feedlot and a cow calf herd is you raise them from like what is the difference yes exactly that's right okay stalkers you know come in at oh four or five hundred pounds 
come in for us they came in in the fall we put them on wheat pasture and on grass and in the spring march april we sell them and hope they'd put on enough gain that they make a little bit of money okay they usually made enough money that we paid our note at the bank and we paid our commercial fertilizer note onto (laughs) our cultivated land ironic interesting Uh, it is ironic yes (laughs) so you transition to this cow calf herd we do Okay. And then, like, it takes a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for someone who knew what they were doing other than us, because we didn't, it would probably not take so long, but it took us nine years to do that. Oh, wow. Because we also had to t- figure out how to raise our own feed, like alfalfa. Right. And we had a small alfalfa patch, but it wasn't large enough, and it wasn't, we had just started certifying it organic as well. And then, you know, are we going to need other organic food stuff? Because in our community, you don't go next door. You don't go to the local feed store and buy organic anything. It's not available. Wow. We needed to raise you whatever have to we it. needed. We had to grow. And it's interesting because alfalfa is one of the like 11 crops or 10 crops that are GMO. So if you weren't certified organic, you'd probably be growing GMO alfalfa on your property using all the inputs, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, we we were using inputs and mm-hmm. in lots of insecticides because bugs right. like that stuff. And right. Yes, all of those things. Mm-hmm. So we quit. Yeah. Probably the hardest time of transitioning was in the first three years not only were we learning the organic processes but you know insects would come along and like you know well gosh it would be easier to pick up the phone and call the applicator tell him come out and spray the thing you know (laughs) we need to get rid of these green bugs or these aphids but we couldn't do that so So what did you do to study Mm. and read and research and figure out how we were going to combat those things. And there's ways. Sugar water worked awesome. Wow. It's cheap, too. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so we we finally get our beef to where we can certify it. And like, well, this is awesome, but who's going to know what it is because we didn't have a private label? Oh. So then we start that process. And that took almost a year for me to figure out how to get all the requirements in a label and get it through usda Mm. so basically 10 years after we started crop uh, organic farming we had a organic beef operation wow and that's a long time i mean you have to be dedicated if you're gonna wait 10 years to see something come to fruition all the while you're learning i can't imagine like your bookshelves at home they're just probably stocked full with tons of resources I'm sure John just spent endless hours looking at this stuff, probably also talking to your neighbor. I mean, what a blessing he must have been because he was in the organic farming game, right? Yes. And so he could yes. he could be a, a, a someone to lean on, hold your hand a little bit in some capacity. Yes, he had some history there, yeah. which was helpful. And the second year, after renting the first year, the second year, the only other organic farmer who was an elderly gentleman contacted John and said, would you farm mm. my property as well he was like I say he was elderly and ready to give it up uh, and again you know the first deal was like oh man I don't know if we could do that or not and he's like well hey you farm for him 
you can farm for me and I'll help you. Mm -hmm. And he had some other um, end marketing resources that he had used to send his wheat. And so he put us in contact with all those. So while John is learning how to farm like our grandparents farmed Mm -hmm. and make it successful, we are also now faced with like, oh my goodness, we have always used the conventional marketplace. We've always taken our wheat and grains to the marketplace. We've always taken our cattle to the marketplace. And so we were faced with learning to be marketers, Mm. which we're not by nature. Mm -hmm. But we had to learn it or we were sitting on a product of value (laughs) with no value. That was a challenge. And it still is. Especially, I think, at our age. Yeah. Because we weren't raised with technology. So we're being pushed and pressured to learn it. (laughs) Uh, Thankfully, I've got grandkids that help me with that. Totally. But, uh, and it's ever-changing, as you well know. Mm -hmm. Marketplace is constantly changing. It changed tremendously uh, during and after covid of course mm-hmm. so it's it's a moving target and uh, we're having to learn that but it's a challenge and we enjoy challenges i was just gonna say it sounds like you guys rise to every occasion you've been called to because like and i wish john was here with us today but i love that um you're like i don't know how to do this and you did say no at first but when you said yes you you committed and you figured it out. And it's like every piece of the journey. I I always make the assumption that the conventional like sphere of agriculture, you probably are locked into specific people you're contracting with, specific people you're buying cows from. Like it has to stay in that system. There's not really a ton of overlap between conventional and organic because then that would mess with the certification, right? So you probably had to find new sources new relationships, new new people came out of the woodwork a little bit because they're like, oh, another organic farmer? Okay, they, maybe they can manage my land too. You have to start from square one, I would assume, right? And my question for you is like, the mentality piece is always the thing that I struggle with. It's like, if I'm talking to a conventional farmer, could I not just sit down with them for 25 minutes and like talk to them and get them to change their viewpoint on how they view the land? Did you notice that your understanding of your farm and your property and honestly probably your family's legacy, like you were shifting your entire mindset, right? When you made that decision. It's a total shift in the paradigm of your thinking. And isn't, I mean, to me, that's exhausting. That's really hard to to drop what you think you know, honestly, to drop your pride to maybe even like question your family's like your family before you like not just in terms of like hey was were they doing it this way for a reason what was their motive and to then wrestle with okay I gotta adopt a whole new system here a whole new system yes I'm still in agriculture but we're playing a different game did you guys have like conversations late at night talking about that was that something you were just more dealing with in an internal dialogue how did you like mentally process the difference in the way you saw your farm? You know, I th- would have to give that credit to John because he was the one that was going to operate the farm. Mm. I was watching and 
doing what he instructed. You know, I, I was very hands, I have always been very hands-on on the farming, um, to the extent of when John was doing some custom harvesting and gone through it for six to eight weeks during the summer, I managed the farm. I wow. did all the farming. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I just watched him start reading and studying and taking a new interest in his vocation. Yeah. And that in itself is very rewarding. And when we first got into it, I'll never forget the opportunity. We were at John Centennial Farm with a reporter. And we went on top of the Gloss Mountain that oversees his farm. And this camera and microphone is in front of me. And I am asked the question, what do you think your ancestors would think of you now? And I just started to cry. Wow. It's not what they think of me. It's what I think of them. Mm-hmm. And the amount of brave that they had, the fortitude they had, the challenges they were willing to accept to make that land run, and then to stay on that land that was so difficult that they would leave their families, and they had large families then, you know, five, six, eight children, and seek employment in town, plant a thousand trees, uh, have chickens, plant a garden, take your leftover eggs to town and sell them. They are the heroes. Mm -hmm. So what we do now I hope just stems off of what they have taught us yeah and showed us and what we can see from what we've inherited mm-hmm. that's cool um gosh I feel like we've covered so much and uh Joey's passing me his notebook so I can ask him a question uh, he is in the room today he just doesn't have a microphone on Um, Joey writes down, what does the term organic mean to you? Well, the term organic to me means that we are doing everything to build the soil through natural means without the use of synthetics or commercial additives. Mm -hmm. Um, We have in the past done a lot to destroy the health of our soil and the organic matter. So now we need to regenerate that and it takes time, Mm -hmm. a lot of time and a lot of diligence to do that. And regeneration, I believe, is defined differently according to the area where you live. We read a lot and study a lot about regenerative and especially cover crops and those types of things. We have to look at those based on our climate. So do we have enough growing season to make a cover crop beneficial? Mm. Can we get our cash crop harvested? Can we have enough moisture at that point to plant a cover crop, get it established, work it back in the soil, and be able to plant our next cash crop in time? Mm -hmm. That does not always happen. Some years it does. And when it does, we take full advantage of that. But other times it does not. Mm 
mm-hmm. but we try to do as minimal cultivation as we can and then we add uh, minerals mm-hmm. back into the soil as much as we possibly can as well and that takes time too because you would like to just dump a whole bunch on there and make <laughs> it healthy overnight but uh, economics of that is not possible so over time you try to build and we have also tried to rotate more we'd like to rotate every field out every three years we're just about to get to that point where we can rotate everything out on a three-year basis Mm. which again is very helpful and we can see the production difference as well when we're able to do that so it's there's advantages definitely to that now are you rotating pasture to wheat field or like are you putting something else on your wheat field like your cover crop what are you rotating we would would harvest two years go with the cover crop harvest two years go with the cover crop interesting our pastures are spread out and they're in smaller most of them are in smaller plots like not over 160 acres or we can close a gate and you know confine them to 80 or whatever we try to rotate that through we are due to the drought experiencing some of the worst pasture conditions we've ever really had to deal with mm-hmm. um we're not pleased with how our pastures look but there's nothing at the, this point we can do about it mm-hmm. uh, we can cut back in the number of cattle if we have to and we may need to do that before spring comes mm-hmm. um, so it's been difficult but ordinarily under most conditions we can rotate them around and rotate them through enough that the pastures are constantly regenerating themselves we were able to on my family centennial farm fence that into 40 acre plots cool you know i think i mentioned that my great-grandfather settled on this sandy very sandy soil and of course one of the first things he did was break it out break the sod out plant cash crop and that cash crop was planted for years and years and in fact when john and i started farming that it was still all in wheat wow and one winter we had a dry spell we got the wheat planted it came up inch or two tall we didn't get any more rain until spring and so during the winter when the winds blew oh my goodness that soil went into the air went across the road it was hard (laughs) to see down the road sometimes if it was really windy people were in town were talking about don't drive by there we're like oh my goodness and that was the end of that we said you know what that's not good we're not going to allow that to happen again so we went back into that and planted like 11 species of native grass Mm. which is just what that sandy soil originally was and what it was made for right and that grass just does wonderful so we like i say fenced it off into forest plots and we can move cattle around there and we take the cattle that are close to going to harvest uh-huh. and we put them in that those paddocks cool. and let them graze there and it's just cool and calm and collected there so they do quite well mm. have a nice corral system there so that is our i'm going to say finishing but not in the terms right. of finishing on a feedlot feedlot times so organic to you is a method of your everyday work it is yes we have the overarching you know we don't put in synthetic inputs or we don't use these types of fertilizers or whatever but it's also 
understanding your land. It's understanding what can grow on which types of soil. It's understanding what your cows need, what your wheat fields, what your pastures need. It's, it's an entirely different way of approaching a piece of land as just a commodity, something that just produces, produces, produces. You can't do that in organic farming right. because you might last like a year or two, you know? Right. And so it's this constant to me when I, every time I hear a farmer or a rancher talk about their organic operation, to me, it's a constant balancing act. It's like you have to be attuned to what's going on on your property. You have to understand that there are like there's a high level of critical thinking because you have to, like you said, okay, we have aphids. What do we do? We can't come in and tell them to just fumigate the fields. We have to combat this another way. Um, it's, it's way less quick fix and way more long-term investment. I mean, 10 years to try to transition. And the reason we ask that question is because as consumers, people like me and Joey who don't, didn't grow up on a farm and don't farm currently, it can be challenging when we walk into a grocery store or a market of any kind. And our perception of organic is that, oh, it's like two to three dollars more. And, and the end consumer might not understand all of the extra effort, the different um, philosophies even in, uh, encompassed in the growing. And so Joey and I know, right, because we have this podcast and we're highly passionate about this. But speaking to people who are the consumers in the marketplaces, that's why we have this podcast. And that's why we love having people like you on to explain what organic means to you so that people can, A, have a respect for the work you do because it's incredible. B, understand why why it's more expensive. Well, because it takes longer and it's harder work. And you know what? There's a higher value to having food grown in a specific way that doesn't have harmful chemicals or residues on it that isn't going to disrupt my microbiome and isn't going to hurt my family, right? Wheat is something that Joey and I um, 100% only ever buy organic. We don't mess around with conventional wheat because of a number of things um but mainly like we it's a staple in our home like we were big sourdough bakers we bake a lot of products so all of that to say i'm i'm thankful for your just clear and concise this is what organic means to me because that is what organic means to the people producing the food and we want to match that as best we can to the consumer so that they can understand what organic means. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, so what, what you said about timing. Yeah. We thought, and we were full-time farmers. We were full-time conventional farmers. Mm -hmm. But when we went to full-time organic farmers, now that's full-time. <laughs> because it's not so seasonal anymore. It's year-round. Mm -hmm. So we went from, you know, we would plant a crop in the fall. We would purchase stalker steers. We didn't worry about the crop other than do we need to call the spray plane for a reason or not. And then we would sell those calves in the spring. Okay, so now we're out of the livestock business, so now we're back ready for, to harvest our cash crop, till the soil, and we're back to the fall. Shorter timelines. Very much shorter. Yeah. And... For us, we either had livestock that were requiring our time or we had cultivated land requiring our time. There was very little overlap. I think that's why John got bored. 
<laughs> yeah. He's not anymore. So now we we have cow calves and and we we have calves born year round. Oh, really? Yes. You don't have a season. We do not have a season. Calves are born year round. And you do you And that's helpful to the consumer and to us because that way we have livestock ready for harvest year round so you're not doing artificial insemination in a specific time you're letting no we wouldn't do that organic anyway okay yeah so we have the breeding stock and everything okay yeah interesting and the cow needs to live on our organic certified pasture before the calf is born and the calf stays on our property until it goes to harvest wow and our processor is certified organic as well okay so now we're 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 cow calving and whatever (laughs) year round and we're constantly looking at cultivation methods we're rotating which Mm -hmm. is means we farm a little more year round so we are in it all the time yeah it is totally different Mm -hmm. which is exciting um joey wants to know and I want to know this too, and almost like I would almost phrase this as two parts. One, why do you think more conventional farmers don't transition to organic? Well, I think it's not so much the question of conventional to organic. It's the question of why do we make changes in the first place? Mm. So if for us, example, we're a prime example we watched our parents transition into conventional when it was our turn to start farming everything that we saw was conventional we were comfortable with that Um, we had some background in that Mm -hmm. so there was no motivation to change we had to experience something very different to even make us think about would we change Mm. and so you know if you're comfortable with what you're doing you're probably not going to go out there and just change it for no reason and I think that's the way it is with the farmers and and we experienced that while we were uh, transitioning it would have been easier believe me sometimes to pick up the phone and call fertilizer application fellow or the spray plane or whatever than to have to try to figure it out on your own those were difficult times Mm -hmm. they were challenging and it was fine but you just don't change probably the majority of people do not change just for change purposes Mm. so the people that we farm around all our neighbors are conventional farmers and the majority of them have a history in that that go back a generation or two as well and they're comfortable there do you think if they understood or if you understood prior to your neighbor some of the repercussions of conventional farming as you understand today do you think that would have been enough to change your mind we are beginning to see some change and shift in the paradigm of thinking when we first started organic farming and we were still getting all these conventional farming publications mm. you didn't read the word organic that's in true. those magazines or pu- newspapers or publications 
you can see organic in there once in a while now. <laughs> and you can see cover crops. You can see reading about uh, building organic matter, putting life back into your soil. Um, there is quite a ways to come yet in yeah. that, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you see in, in regenerative farming, you see a lot of uh, no-till. Yeah. So we have, you know, considered how does that fit us? And again, we have to go back and look at our climate, mm-hmm. what we're able to do. Um, and we have not been able to figure out how no-till will fit into our model. Model. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you say that because we just had a conversation with someone from the Rodell Institute on the podcast. And tilling and like the most smallest scale of like a backyard garden has been a tension point between me and Joey because he grew up gardening with his parents and they they rototilled the plot every single year and then I as I was kind of learning about you hear organic no-till regenerative no-till whatever I was like oh no we can't till like that this is like a thing and it messes up the the connections between the microbes and it uh, it uh, um basically like turns everything over and then the sun beats down on it and oxidizes everything and there's some there's some thing that you're taking from the soil when you till and so we brought this conversation to um, the person we were interviewing and he basically was like tilling is like withdrawing from your bank account you're taking something from the soil so as long as you are careful to put something back in he said quote you have to earn your right to till And that made so much more sense to me because I have talked to other like biodynamic farmers even or like regenerative and organic and it's not across the board like, oh, we don't till, you know, it works in some places. It doesn't work in others. And I'm sure that's that's true with other things like you're saying the cover crop. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Yes. So I just it's funny. The tilling piece keeps coming back to haunt me because, you know, I was basically wrong, but it's. There's nuance. There's always nuance, especially when you're growing living things and you're managing living land. So I think that that's interesting. Um, I'm curious what type of wheat you grow. We haven't even asked this yet, but what type of wheat are you guys growing? It's a hard red winter. Okay, so you'd use that for like a bread flour? Yes. That's amazing. Yes. And are you, do you mill any and sell milled flour? We have in the past. But that is very time-consuming as well. Totally. So we no longer do that. It just didn't fit into our operation over time. But we did at one time. We uh, processed. And again, we went back to history and found some old flower bags that came from the early 1900s. And there was one called Fairview's Best. So we took that flower sack and redesigned it, brought it up to speed so that... Uh, everybody liked it you know what it says and all the requirements were met and we milled some of our own wheat for several years oh that's so cool packaged it as Fairview's best that's fun um so you're selling wheat berries then are you selling that like do you have contracts with like uh big box brands or are you selling directly to consumer what does that model both actually okay yes we have contracts um, semis come to our farm and load out of our grain bins and then we also um, sell bags of wheat 25 pound bags of wheat with our private label so we're we're doing both you do and it's that i assume that's pretty typical of 
a, a farm operation to kind of... You know, of... it's not. Oh, I really? I don't think so. Because, again, we go back to what's convenient and mm. what works well. And so we did not do that until we certified. And it was several years after we were organic before we started realizing, hey, there's some people out here in the community that would like just a small amount of organic wheat. Yeah. And uh, I do not know of any other farmers in our area that do that it's it's just easier to put it in a bin and truck it out than it is to take out a small amount and package it and weigh it and all of that stuff oh totally it's it's like you're doing retail i mean it's you're you're opening your own store you're direct to consumer it's a lot of legwork right so or you can just have these consistent contracts hey you pick up this much i I guess that is true uh this is uh, something I always get pushback on. And now you're probably, uh, Oklahoma's pretty dry, right? Yes. It, do you see other wheat farmers using chemical desiccants to dry out their wheat before harvest? No. No, not in Oklahoma. I've never seen it. I've heard of that, and I'm asked that question frequently. Are you? I have never seen it. You've never seen it. And on our custom harvest run, where we would start harvesting in Texas, and we went clear up into Wyoming, I never saw it. Interesting. Very. Because it's like this this thing where it's like, I know that chemical desiccants are used on wheat in some regions where it's wetter, and they don't have the drying season, because you obviously harvest wheat once it's dry. But then... It's like we talk to wheat farmers who are like, I don't know anyone who does that. I don't know anyone who play, who sprays their wheat or oats or barley with glyphosate. But then we see these um, studies or news articles coming out saying like all of these brands, all of these conventional brands test high for Roundup or glyphosate or whatever other desiccant they're talking about. And then like we just said, we had a conversation with um, a woman named Zen Honeycutt who tested public school lunches. Every single wheat-based product tested positive for glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup. So it's this weird jumbly place I'm in where I'm like, there might be a portion of the population that's growing wheat that has to rely on a, or chooses to rely on a chemical desiccant. And every time we talk about that, it's semi-controversial because then we talk to wheat farmers in drier climates who are like, I don't know that. I've never seen it. And Joey and I, we don't know. We're in Ohio. It's in the wheat product that is being tested and talked about on the news. We buy organic because we believe in that system. And also we want to avoid anything synthetically input. But I don't know. Like, do you, how do you, I guess, what's your response to that? Well, I'm not sure whether the chemical would be sprayed on the growing crop in order to harvest it, or is it residue from the soil? Mm. Now, I see that. You see our, the soil sprayed? Yes. I, you know, after harvest, the conventional farmer the no, and sometimes a no-till farmer one of the first things they do is come in and spray Roundup to keep weeds and stuff at bay. Mm. So, so that penetrates the soil. Yeah. And again, you know, I have to go back into our own personal history if we did it. And 
if it was a wet summer and the weeds and the crabgrass and all those things were taking control, we might spray a second time. Yeah. Then we go in cultivate to plant the plant the seed. So that to me tells me why it is that when you transition to organic, there's a three year period mm-hmm. where that soil is not receiving any of those inputs, harmful inputs, and let the harmful inputs work their way out. Yeah. Because, I mean, plants can uptake what's in the soil. Absolutely. And so I like your question of, well, maybe they're not using Roundup as a desiccant, which is a drying agent. Now, I've seen those used in other crops in my area, like potatoes, uh, soybeans. Okay, soybeans. Yes. Where, you know, it's getting to be winter time and they need to get that crop out of there. And they'll go in and, and, and spray it so that plant dies and they can get that crop off but i've not ever seen it in wheat interesting well that's good to know i'm glad i heard that perspective any other notebook passing questions from you joe maybe towards the end okay like what oh um yeah well before before we wrap up here joey has a final question but um if you were to encourage someone who was going, who sat in your position maybe 20 years ago, and they're on the fence about transitioning to organic or changing their methodology of farming, how, what words of advice would you give them? I've often said I wished I was 20 years younger <laughs> because I think the potential is out there. And, uh, you know, living in the center of the United States means that we gather information from the coast and absorb it slower. Yeah. So when we started organic back in 96, it was well known on the coast. Yeah. And when we transitioned and finally got our beef into the organic program in 2006, organic beef was being served in restaurants on the coast was very unheard of in center part of the United States. So uh, there would be some advantages to being 20 years younger because then I'd have longer time to work on this. But I think what I would say to someone that's considering organic is that the consumers need producers and growers and the producer and grower needs a consumer. I believe as a population, we're becoming more and more aware of that. We started becoming aware of that probably 10 years ago because we would watch and listen to people who would find us at a farmer's market. And many of those were families with very young children. And they would start saying, we just think there's probably some healthier food out there and we want to feed our families healthy give them the best start we possibly can so that we've we've kind of watched that transition over time and now it's much more common to hear that and see that and um, so I think that as a producer if that's what we're called we have the opportunity to meet the need of the consumer 
And we have it in a way to build a trust. Mm-hmm. Because as you've mentioned, there's all these labels out there and we're not sure how to define them. But if you actually know someone who's growing the food, have a conversation with them. Maybe you visit their backyard or maybe you visit my farm. I don't know. And you realize what we do and how we do it and that we're sincere about it. Then now you relate that to your food, to the healthier food and to the healthier family. And the same way with us as a producer or a farmer, we need the consumer. If it were not for the consumer, we would probably be back in conventional farming, or John says he wouldn't farm at all if he had to go back because he was just hook, line, and sinker into what we do. But I think I would really, really encourage the person on the fence to consider looking at the whole food system, looking at the security of our food, the longevity of the program, and the healthy aspect of it, Mm -hmm. and try it. Because if you tried it, you might just be hook, line, and sinker Mm -hmm. into it like we are. Mm -hmm. What would you say to the consumer who's like, you know, we covered it a little bit in your philosophy of like, what does organic mean to you? But if someone's like, okay, Chris, you know, I get it. You grow wheat and beef and you do a great job. But like my everyday family budget, why does it matter what I buy at the grocery store? You know, there's uh, some studies out, surveys out there now that say that uh, healthy eating reduces your medical bill. Mm. Uh, That would be uh, worthwhile to look into, I yeah. believe. <laughs> uh, and I've had people tell me that they feel like that their family consumes a lesser quantity because they're consuming quality. Yeah. I think that's true. It's something we talk about as, as people are making the transition to real food, as we define it, you know, whole foods and raised in a way that is mirrors nature, biology. It's like you stop wasting money on the like really low nutrient foods like the potato chips and the granola bars and even like breakfast cereal. It's like at the end of the day, that's like a three, four dollar box of cereal that's like giving you a little bit of sugar and carbs. But like it's it's kind of an expensive box of air if you think about it and your nutrient value is pretty low versus maybe a six or seven dollar pound of bacon which is going to give you some fats of protein or some breakfast sausage or steak and eggs, higher price point, but also higher nutrient value. So that's kind of the paradigm shifting we're trying to do and talk to people about. And, you know, it is your grocery budget might shoot up for a minute and then it might plateau a little bit because you realize, wait a second, I can I can stop buying some of those like filler (laughs) veggie straws or any other kind of snacky thing we've become accustomed to. And I can actually feel full and satiated and have a really good mood after my meal instead of feeling kind of blah and low energy. And yeah. So, um, so if you have more energy, you can go out there and work your garden more and grow more of your food, right? Totally. And like what you said about your medical bills, it's like your what you eat affects so much more than just your hunger levels right it, it it affects the producer it affects your local food economy it affects the environment my goodness so much 
and it affects uh, our mental health. I mean, a lot of people like to connect it to physical health, but mental health is a segment of that. And to me, it's like, as a mom choosing foods for my kids and my family, it's just one of the most important decisions I make every day because it's a decision I have to make every day. What are we going to eat? It's like, you can't just not eat for a day. So I don't say that in like a, oh, you need to be stressed out about what you feed your family, but as an empowering thing to say, no, this is an important thing that moves the needle further than you think it does. And I think, like you said, we're just now starting to figure that out, which is awesome. We've just kind of come full circle here because I think we started out talking about how we had to shift in the paradigm of our thinking Mm -hmm. to go from conventional to organic farming Mm -hmm. and the consumers doing the very same thing totally totally and it's not an easy process and it doesn't happen overnight Uh, but it's so rewarding it's so rewarding and it takes those things right we have to drop our pride a little bit we have to unlearn kind of what we thought we knew about the foods we were eating or or who's making them, or where they're coming from, and we have to... And you might even have to uh, take a little ribbing from your neighbors or your friends. <laughs> I can tell you. They're like, what are you doing that for? And why did you just buy that? And how much did you spend for that steak? Mm-hmm. And whatever it is. Yeah, that's a great point, too. And as a producer, we've, we've experienced those same things. Mm-hmm. Like, what are they doing? <laughs> And when we first did it, you know, we could tell when it was about coffee break time at the local coffee shop. And this is, I mean, this is true stuff. They would, some of them would drive by to see what we were doing and then go report, you know, and talk about what in the world. And, you know, at at first that was like, oh, you know, this is, this is really bothering us. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to be the center of conversation much of anywhere, let alone in that realm but after a while it's like well y'all come on out and check it out <laughs> we don't mind it's fine this is who we are yeah we're good with it i think a lot of that has subsided because over time we've we've stood it you know we've stood the test of time now totally and they're pretty confident those people aren't going to change their minds so we just have to accept that <laughs> and our advantage is that we've lived in both worlds yeah tremendous advantage and same for you. Yeah. You've lived in both worlds now. Mm-hmm. And but you can watch your friends try to make that same shift and yeah. it's it's difficult. It is difficult. I'm curious what actually Joey's curious what the future of John's farm looks like. Well, you know, uh, we never can totally read the future, but we have a grandson who will graduate from high school this year. And um, he is extremely interested in farming. Um, I'm not sure. It might be because his nickname is Farmer. Um, (laughs) In our family, John's dad nicknamed everyone. And John has inherited that characteristic, I guess. So all of our grandchildren have nicknames, and our great-grandson has a nickname as well. Kale's nickname was Farmer. So I don't know if that's the main influence or what, but he has uh, been on the farm as much as he can be all his life. Uh, He comes to the farm every summer and works, and his idea is that he's going to be a farmer. Now, actually, we're trying to encourage him to take a couple years 
uh, in between high school and go get certified in a couple of things that will help you on the farm, like diesel mechanics and some of those types of things, uh, just as an opportunity for him to do something else and learn, broaden his perspective. Mm -hmm. But uh, he is very convinced that he will be a farmer. But, you know, we don't really know what that will look like either. Um, there will be some changes in farming, I'm sure. There will be new things discovered. Um, how much influence the government will have over time, we don't know those things. Mm -hmm. But I trust that uh, he is grounded enough and interested enough that he'll carry on. And the other grandkids, I think that we have ingrained into them the importance of our history and our heritage mm -hmm. to where they will continue to value the land. And uh, it'll look different, and that's fine. But I think they will love it, and they'll continue to cherish it. And um, that will be, if we can pass that along to them, what more could we ask? Yeah, legacy is what you're building into right now. Right, yeah. You know, I'm an adopted kid, so I was in my third foster home before I came into my forever home mm. and little did I realize then that I was given a name I was given history and a heritage mm -hmm. and I have opportunity to pass that along wow and that's just tremendous that's a tremendous blessing so whatever our history is and whatever our story is he gets the glory for it, mm -hmm. and we hope that that continues for the generations ahead. And we hope that what we're doing now will just improve that process, mm -hmm. that what we inherited, it was awesome. Is there a word awesomer? Because that's <laughs> what we would like it to be when we pass it on to the next generations. Yeah. I think it will be. They're good carry-oners. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. I'm curious how you view the term innovation as it applies to farming innovation innovation how innovation applies to farming would probably be like how any innovation applies to whatever it is in life mm -hmm. so we see a new implement come out then we need to evaluate that implement and how it fits into our operation but also what will be the end result yeah from that mm. so it's just like technology yep there are so many amazing facets of technology but we have to admit there's a few that aren't so amazing that we wish we didn't have to deal with right so the same way with farming mm -hmm. um we are beginning to see, I think, some innovation in organic inputs that will be helpful in growing the health of our soil. Those have been slow to come about, but they are gradually picking up mm -hmm. as people look towards the organic farming operations. So those innovations could be very helpful and perhaps uh, save them some time along the way. Yeah. Those are yet to come, I think. I, that's exactly kind of what I was hoping you would say because it, it's like you can either fall in two camps. You can be like real traditionalist and say, um, I'm going to go back to the way things were done. We're going to look back to look forward, like you said earlier, which is absolutely valid. But then there's it's 
we're not living in that time anymore. It's almost impossible to do it exactly the way it was. So then you have the other side that's like the future of farming is all innovation. It's all technology. It's all things that we're about to create. It's all man-made um, new newness. Uh, that is the essence of the GMO project, right? Creating a new species so that it can... And, and a lot of those innovations, like what you're saying, is we have to look at their end result. And we can see far enough in the future or we can see from the last 20, 30 years that we've been operating under a, a new, quote, innovation that, hey, guys, this isn't working like we thought it would. Or this isn't putting out, yeah, this is doing the thing we thought it would, but it's also doing these other negatives to our bodies or our soil. I think that's the thing when Lizzie visited your farm, she was just blown away by how innovative you guys are because every step of the way you're thinking through, okay, how are we going to overcome this next obstacle? COVID hits, it changes your business model. You're like, okay, now we're going to, our, our wheat business is now doing things because of things that are happening overseas. Like you, you're shifting as things are shifting. To me, that's innovation. Innovation doesn't always have to mean adopting the newest technology. Sometimes it means actually going back to older technology. Sometimes it means holding that in the balance of how can we bring in something that might be new, but also we can see where it's headed or we can apply it in this way too. And we can honestly keep asking ourselves. It's like how many farmers... Or how many times, like in society, do we just adopt something new and we don't we don't self check in a year or two? Hey, was that a good idea? Maybe not. So, I I don't believe those two philosophies exist completely separate. I think there's overlap, and I think you and John are a good example of overlap, where you're both honoring your heritage and your family's legacy and your physical environment, and you're listening to the land and what that is telling you how it needs to you know, go. And you're also utilizing like books are a modern technology, right? Media is a modern technology. We you're utilizing written word from other people to learn things and gain more information, stuff that people before us didn't have access to. You can now go on this thing called the computer, right? And and look for things and listen to a podcast, right? Exactly what we're doing right now. This is a beautiful innovation I'm thankful for. But um, every every progression of technology asks us to then like reevaluate and I just I appreciate that you guys reevaluate and you look at those things and you do the hard emotional and mental legwork to answer it honestly and I think that that's why you have come full circle in your understanding of the land you're stewarding and the fact that it's got a hundred years plus of Legacy and history is so fun. And like I said before, unless you plan on writing a book, um, I'm so honored to like share your story on our podcast. So well, I think I'm the one that's honored to be able to have the opportunity to share it. Mm -hmm. We uh, place high value in it. And back to your innovation, you know, uh, there are things that we do look back at and we try to replicate and then we try to improve. Yeah. One of those things would not be going back to a one bottom plow pulled behind a horse. <laughs> you know, we, we do enjoy our four-wheel drive tractors and, and our GPS. <laughs> but totally. there are some good things about those too, you know. But uh, 
there's there's a lot to be combined overall Mm -hmm. and if you just keep looking at the whole picture john like i said he can remember things so he can look back and think about everything his dad did and he helped his dad and what did that do he remembers planting uh winter peas when he was a kid and then seeing what he thought that did to the next year's crop and so now he has opportunity to think oh i can replicate that and there's just there's just so much of that that we can do and like i say we 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 enjoy challenges and we've got them Mm -hmm. but that's okay that's amazing anything else that you wish to share any other stories you can think that you want to share before we wrap up well there's a saying that says our direction will determine our destination and uh we change direction along the way and it certainly has uh, determined our current situation our destination i guess you could say Um, and we're glad it did Mm. we're glad we had that opportunity Um, wouldn't change it for the world Um, it's given us a new sense of well-being and we feel like that we're improving situations now for people that are looking for healthy food we're so we're so thankful that we have uh, a supply that meets our own but can still get out there and and work with other consumers and meet their demands as well Mm -hmm. we're not big farmers we have 100 cows Mm -hmm. but that's more than enough to feed our family and some others along the way and the relationships that we build doing that are just phenomenal. We would not have ever had that opportunity in the conventional marketplace. Mm-hmm. Not at all. We didn't know who was eating our food. Mm-hmm. We knew where to take it, but that was the extent. And now you know, I get emails and texts and messages and whatever all the time. And we meet people face to face, just like we're doing here, that are like minded and build relationships and isn't that what it's about yeah that's really cool well chris thank you for coming on the show today i know i'm just super excited counting down the days till this episode drops because i think you covered so many wonderful aspects of your family history and gave us insight into the food producer i love how you connected uh you know coming full circle and switching mentalities both as the producer but us as the consumers are having to do that same thing so we need to lock arms with our producers and say you know what i see you i i know the struggle you're going through and we're all on this like mission very much together right we all want the same thing we want healthy soils we want healthy families we want healthy environments healthy relationships so thank you thanks for being here i thank you a joy